Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, oh, I can hear you all now. Without further ado, without further ado, it's been seven months since your last episode, Bill. What's up with that? Hey, Realty Speak fans, thank you so much for being patient for the last seven months. After 47 episodes and five years of writing, producing, recording, editing, and publishing, it was time to take a break. But I always knew I'd be coming back. Taking a pause helps gain clarity. And today, we come back strong to revisit some of what's happened in the multifamily property industry in New York City since that fateful day four-plus years ago in June of 2019, when the New York State Legislature passed the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, also known as HSTPA. Nine months later, after that legislation changed the face of multifamily real estate in New York City, I invited attorneys Nativ Winiarski and his partner Jim Marino for episode 27, Overregulation of Property Rights, The Real Consequences. That episode was recorded March 10th, 2020, and published three days later on Friday the 13th. I don't know, is that a coincidence? Now, Nativ and Jim had a lot to say in that episode about how draconian that legislation was. And while we were having that conversation, we had no idea what was about to happen a few days later. The pandemic in full force and a global shutdown of life as we knew it. In April of 2020, the federal government passed at the speed of light the CARES Act, which provided for $2.2 trillion in economic stimulus. But guess what, folks? If you owned investment real estate and self-managed it without a property management entity, you were not qualified to receive the forgivable loans included in the stimulus package. Then there was the eviction moratorium that somehow communicated to people that they didn't need to pay the rent. So even if they could, many did not. And because of the moratorium, a property owner could not evict those people for non-payment or anything else for that matter. Then, not so fast, 18 months from when the pandemic started, the federal and state governments created the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, known as ERAP, where property owners could receive up to 15 months of back rent, but the tenant had to qualify and apply for the relief. Again, the property owner had no control over the outcome. Later on, LRAP was created so that owners could apply without the tenant, and that did help, but in many cases, it was too little, too late, and the funds ran out, and many received nothing. Now, while HSTPA was draconian at its time of passage, of course, the pandemic's consequences greatly exacerbated the impact of that legislation. And as we fast forward to today, you would think that Governor Hochul's housing pack, supported by Mayor Adams, would have been good to pass into law. But guess what? None of it, nada, was passed during the 2023 New York State Legislative Session. Oh, but what did pass? In an overtime session of the State Assembly, and now on the governor's desk to sign, two very anti-housing bills, Senate Bill 2980C, Assembly Bill 6216B, and Senate Bill 2943, and Assembly Bill A4047. 
What was not passed in the 11th hour, or should we say the 13th hour, was the Local Regulated Housing Restoration Adjustment Bill, which was supported by the real estate community, also known as LRHRA. That would have created the ability for empty rent-stabilized apartments to be restored and re-rented at a fair, stabilized rent. There are many estimates of how many of those apartments exist, but we can safely say forty to 60,000 units. Imagine that at 50,000 units, there is affordable housing for what? 100,000 to 200,000 New Yorkers in need of housing, and the state legislature said no to that. I don't get it. And I hope after you listen to this Realty Speak Comeback episode 48, you have a better understanding of the complexity of housing in New York City and get on the phone and on your keyboard and contact your state senators, your state assembly people, and your New York City council members and say very, very loud, what the heck is going on here? Just Google who represents me, NYC, who represents me, NYC, and enter your address for who to reach out to. So now, today, Thursday, July 13th, 2023, and really without further ado, I'm your host, Bill Widener, and I'd like to welcome today's three guests, Val, Lincoln, and Irving, who are property owners in three of the boroughs in the amazing city in New York, the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. They are also part of the leadership of Spony, Small Property Owners of New York, which has advocated for fair housing policy since 1984. Val, Lincoln, and Irving have lived the last four years. And while I have already somewhat summarized that, we will chat today about their personal experiences, but more importantly, what should happen moving forward. Real solutions from real property owners who know how to provide housing and what our state and city need to do now, right now, to help property owners and the people who rent from them. Welcome, Val, Lincoln, and Irving. Thanks for being here today from me and the Realty Speak audience. Great to be here, Bill. Hey, Bill. Great to be here. Thank you, Bill, for inviting me to Realty Speak. Fantastic that you folks are all here. And I'd say let's get started. So why don't each of you tell us a little bit about your ownership history? Val, how about you go first? We uh, immigrated to the U.S. in uh, 1970 from a communist country. I was I was two years old, giving up my age there. Sorry about that. <laughs> I guess everyone's going to do the math. Everyone's going to do the math. We got into real estate uh, in the mid-1990s and expanded our portfolio slowly and then also uh, started into third-party management, basically managing in the boroughs, mostly in the Bronx, uh, Brooklyn, and uh, Manhattan. And how many families would you say you provide housing for uh, across the portfolio of ownership and third-party management? About 600 families. Wow. How many of those apartments were stabilized? Uh, the majority would be uh, rent stabilized, yes. Right. Okay. So, so you've been subject to what's been happening uh, over the last four years with the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act and also the uh, restrictions as a result of the pandemic. Yes, very much so. And Lincoln, tell us a little bit about uh, your housing history. The family immigrated in the early 50s and uh, we started uh, getting into property in, in the early 60s. And my my parents, uh, they came in in the in the late sixties, and they started getting the property in, in in the early seventies. We had a pretty decent footprint 
in New York, and then it's petered out to this one property now I'm holding on to. You live in that property, right? Correct. How many families are you providing housing to? It's a 14-unit building. 14-unit building, but you occupy one. So so 13 families are benefiting from you living there and probably taking care of the building. Correct. Uh, you do everything? Yes, right now, everything. Yeah. And Irving, how about you? Well, I'm a second-generation property owner in Chinatown. Uh, my father bought the building during the 1980s, and I currently manage eight residential as well as four commercial. So out of the eight residential, are any of them rent-stabilized? Yes, I have eight rent-stabilized apartments. Oh, so all of them? Yes. Val, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about, especially because you manage so many different units, you wanted to talk a little bit about how the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act has restricted you somewhat in terms of providing affordable housing to all these different families. Have you had to not rent units that have become naturally vacant because the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act greatly reduced how individual apartment improvements are handled? Yes, a significant effect is because of that. We we have apartments that become vacant that um, because of the limitations, we just can't invest in, in, in bringing them up to HQS standards. So, so tell me a little bit about what you would have done before HSTPA and how that differs from what you can do now after HSTPA. Well, prior to HSTPA, we were able to obtain a vacancy allowance on the rent as well as a longevity allowance. In addition to that, then also put in for a uh, an improvement on the apartment and things that we would have improved are uh, making it lead-free, uh, updating maybe electrical, updating the kitchens and the bathrooms, appliances, uh, things of that sort. So uh, what would that vacancy bonus and that longevity bonus, and, and I guess the longevity bonus is if the existing tenant who just vacated was there over a certain period of time, I forget what it is, seven, 10 years or something, but uh, what, what would that add up to or percentage-wise? It just depends. If you have a, a stabilized apartment that uh, someone's been living in for 30 years or 40 years and the rent's only about, say, six or 700, and you do a substantial um, improvement, you're going to be able to increase the rent quite a bit. Um, you, you have to remember that legal rent and what the market is dictating are two different things, right? So talk about that a little bit. Well, sure. So if, if you know, most of our properties are um, in not, you know, not the affluent areas of the boroughs. Um, so the market rent for a two or three bedroom is usually less than what the legal rent would be. And many times we'd have to, you know, offer a preferential rent anyway. All right. So let me understand that. And let's use some actual numbers to make it easier. In a representative building, what would the legal rent be? Well, the legal rent depends on the history of the apartment. But um, say you had an apartment with a legal rent of 2500 and it's a one bedroom. And most of the areas, if they're working people, they can't afford more than, say, fifteen or 1600 for that one bedroom. So now you would then have to go and re-rent that for fifteen or $1,600. But you could raise the legal rent based on the fact that you had uh, these allowances before HSTPA? Correct. So in the past, if we had an apartment that became available, um, we were able to renovate the apartment and put it back on the market. It may have been that the legal rent got revalued at, say, 2500 but the real value of that apartment to your average uh, working person 
is maybe only 15 or 1600. So in a case like that, does the difference between pre-HSTPA and post-HSTPA really make a difference? Well, of course, because that apartment was uh, legally now registered at six or $700, and you, you can't increase the rent more than maybe in total $100 with, with, the, with the vacancy increase on there, with the new lease, you know, the lease renewal increase. So say you get 700 and you have to put in 50 or 60,000. I mean, what's, what's the point? What do you do with that? Now I get it. That apartment might have been renting for $600 a month. It's worth in the marketplace, let's say $1,500 a month. And pre-HSTPA, you could have raised the legal rent to $2,500 a month. But even though you couldn't get $2,500 a month, you could still get to $1,500 a month. But post-HSTPA, the individual apartment improvements and the elimination of the vacancy bonus and the longevity bonus puts you in a situation where you can't raise that rent any more than $89 a month. Give or take, yeah. Right. So let's round it off to 100 bucks. That's right. why, that's right. why yeah. That's what you did. <laughs> <laughs> so now that $600 apartment becomes $700. It really should be renting for $1,500. And you have to put how much into that apartment to rent it for $700? Anywhere from 50000 or more, if, especially if I'm deletting. So you asked a question before, what do you do in a case like that? And I'm going to take a guess. You don't renovate and the apartment stays vacant. The apartment stays vacant. And so now there's a person or family that could rent that apartment and that apartment is not available. And it also reduces the supply of apartments that are available. I mean, we're giving one example, but as I mentioned in the introduction to the episode, there's probably 50 to 60,000 apartments like this that are vacant right now that can't be rented because property owners post HSTPA can't raise the rent regardless of how much money they put into the apartment more than $89 a month which means that there are vacant apartments that could be occupied by people that need them at a market rent, which is less than the legal rent, as Val has demonstrated to us, and those apartments are not available. HSTPA is a misnomer. It has nothing to do with housing stability or tenant protection, for that matter. The fact that there is over 40,000, at the very least, uh, vacant apartments, rent-regulated vacant apartments, shows that the housing crisis that exists in New York of affordable housing was created in Albany. Albany created the legislation that created the crisis. And we need to change that, change the laws, change the way we operate in New York City to provide the affordable housing. Small property owners, or any property owner for that matter, want to provide the housing when it's economically feasible. Currently, the law in the, in the city, in the state, does not make it economically feasible right now, thus the crisis. Currently, it's being exacerbated now with so much homelessness, many uh, working families that are homeless, and now we have a, the migrant situation, which is fostered upon us, that's created an even greater crisis. And despite the fact that we mean every attempt to uh, politically address this question, we are being accused of warehousing. Those vacant apartments are being categorized as warehousing. That's correct. But you're not warehousing because you can't renovate the apartment 
and recoup the investment that you made because you can't raise the rent to what would still be fair based on the example that was just given to us by Val. Lincoln, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? On the warehousing, I look at it several different ways. First off, how can you consider that warehousing when it's a private asset? It's somebody's property that they use to make revenue for themselves. And it's economically not feasible to put the apartment on the market. We'll put us in a situation where in a negative financially to fix up the uh, um, apartment and to rent it out at the price that the government is dictating. Do you have vacant apartments now yourself in the in the one building? Yeah, uh, I'm a little different with uh, Val with that, where I'm in a quote unquote hot market where for the most part, you can get the market rate. Like uh, my two bedroom is about $2,200 in, in my area. You, could, you can get that. But what's the legal rent on that apartment? The legal rent for my apartment is about 400, 400 and change. 400? 460 is the legal rent. Okay, so that's a vacant apartment where you have a legal rent of 460. You could get 2200 but you can't get 2200 because the legal rent's 460 So even if you... Even if you put the $15,000 limit into it and you could raise it $89 a month, you'd, you'd still be getting like five fifty a month. The other thing that we don't talk about is the cost, the actual operating functional cost of the apartment. My math is about $1,200. So you, okay, so you broke it down where instead of, you, you're taking the operating cost of the building, all right, which is like any business that has operating costs, right? And you- and you actually broke them down per unit. Correct. So what you're saying is you have a legal rent of $460, right. and that apartment costs you $1,200 a month if you have it occupied. It's even sitting. To oh, even, even sitting, just, just sitting there, right. He's addressing fixed costs. So it's real estate taxes, water, sewer. Right. What's not understood is the lowest, uh, but the lowest quote I, I got to renovate this apartment so that it's a viable living space was about $84,000. Wow. And if I threw that money at that apartment, the actual operating costs would, would shoot up uh, a good bit and I'm not able to to recoup that. I wouldn't be able to recoup any of that. So I'm already losing, but it would be an even bigger loss if I invested in the, the property. And I'm sure that the year before last, those operating costs were a little bit less than they are this year, and next year, they would be a little bit more. Everyone talk a little bit about how much your insurance has gone up, how much your taxes have gone up, and some of the other things that you're required to do when you own real estate in the city of New York, like lead paint. That's a big issue, where it's uh, added significant cost and uh, delay in turnover at least for me, because I'm struggling with the, the the cash flow to stay solvent and then address these issues. Because I, uh, I, again, with the warehousing thing, uh, we're in the business of putting our, our property on the market so that we can generate revenue. We simply cannot afford to keep things off the market willfully. It's, it's only economic forces that at least keep me uh, out of the market. So when we have to de-lead, uh, that significant cost is also a, a time factor where it'll, it'll drag out, at least for me, the, the amount of time it takes me to turn over. 
Now, there's two lead qualifications, if I understand correctly. There's lead free and lead safe. Now, when you when you have a vacancy, you are required during turnover, if you were going to rent that apartment to someone else, to have it tested. And if it tests positive for lead, which you probably would because it's an old building, you would have to make it lead free or lead safe? Lead safe. Lead safe. Okay. So let's say you just decided, you know what? I'm going to rent the apartment for $500 a month. All right. The legal rent plus whatever I can do based on the individual apartment improvements that I do because it's costing me $1,200. I'm going to rent it for $500. So then I'm only losing $700 instead of, instead of $1,200. How much would it cost you to make it lead safe? You would have to use, at a minimum, you would have to use a paint that is encapsulation paint for lead. And you're looking at, depending on the size of the apartment, but starting at 7000 minimum. But for me, I tend to focus on, because of the fear of the legal hazard, I tend to focus on lead-free. Lead-free. Well, And that would be a lot more expensive. A lot. A lot more, but not only that, Lincoln's bringing up a very important point regarding liability. The insurance companies are not covering for lead much more. They don't, they're, they're carving out lead in the policy. Um, you mentioned insurance costs before, and we went from, say, 400 a unit a few years back to over a thousand a unit. I've got some of my counterparts in the Bronx being quoted at fifteen hundred or even two thousand a unit. What we're getting from our, a lot of our insurance brokers is that the insurance companies are redlining the Bronx and they're going to do the same thing with the other boroughs because of all these issues. We brought it up to uh, various elected officials and we're hoping to bring this up as a significant issue. $1,500 per unit to 2000 per unit to, for coverage. It's just not sustainable. On the insurance topic, people are getting dropped because they have non-pay cases that are dragging out. And the cases do drag out now where before COVID, I was seeing cases drag out two years and, and better. People are getting insurance dropped because they have non-pay cases. Just want to clarify that for the listeners. So you're saying you have where now you can evict someone for non-payment. So you're in court going through that process, non-payment, and that's taking a undue amount of time. And because you're not getting revenue from that and you have an open eviction case for non-payment, the insurance company is using that as an excuse to drop your insurance? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is actually more enlightening for me than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and I'm really glad that we're having this discussion and Realty Speak audience, I hope you're listening close and that you stay with us for the rest of the episode. And that you help us help property owners in the city of New York. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I'd like to share that in addition to my mission to be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate, I will also help you comply with New York City Local Law 152. That's LL 152. Periodic inspection of gas piping systems. This law applies to every building, gas or not, that is not a one-family or two-family residential dwelling. That's every apartment building from three units and up 
every condominium and co-op building, every hotel, every industrial building, every freestanding retail building, and more. Yes, every building except one family and two family residential dwellings. It's been around since 2020, and so has my company, Keep My Gas. Learn more about the law and how to comply at www.ll152.myc. That's www.ll152.myc. Or I'm just a phone call away, 917-232-8529, 917-232-8529. I'll explain everything, get you a quote. So if you haven't complied yet, you can do so before it's too late. What else can I say? Solutions for real estate, it's in my DNA. And now back to the show. Now let's talk about taxes. What's happened? Who wants to who wants to go? Oh, you wait, you're all raising your hand. Who's going first? I could jump in. Uh since the de Blasio's first term to now, or over a hundred percent increase in property tax. And in that time, I think it's thirteen or clo- close to thirteen percent has been the the increase overall from de Blasio to Adams right now in actual uh percent increase in rent stabilized um, rent. The, the, that's what RGB has given us. Uh, it doesn't add up. It's beyond just a disinvestment of rent stabilized properties. It's a attack on, on housing because it, it actually, it directly harms us because we live off of our, our rent roll, but it actually harms the tenants because it forces us to restrict maintenance to the building our maintenance because we this we simply cannot do certain things and we can't uh, like what i was saying with the lead in in the turnover time it extends the time addressing what should be a simple issue because you don't have the money in hand right if you had all these different vacancy and longevity bonuses and you were able to apply tens of thousands of dollars worth of individual apartment improvements to increasing the legal rent, then it would make sense for you. But but you're uh, you're shackled yes. because of HSTPA. You cannot do this. Now, uh, you had mentioned RGB before, and I just want to clarify for the listeners what that means. That's the Rent Guidelines Board. The Rent Guidelines Board uh, meets every year, and then they have a vote in the middle of June, and they basically indicate what the allowable increase will be for a one-year and a two-year lease for rent-stabilized apartments. They also have rent control in there, and they have lofts in there, which are not as prevalent as rent-stabilized apartments. And this year, it was, I believe, 3% for a one-year lease. And then uh, they they kind of broke it down to the two-year lease I think it's uh, 2.5% the first year and 3.5% the second year, so it essentially uh, equals 6%, but the way it's done is confusing, depending on when the lease starts. Anyway, this is all for any leases that are uh, effective starting October 1st, uh, 2023. So what Lincoln was saying is that you know the insurance is going up, the taxes are going up, and, and the Rent Guidelines Board data showed that there should be a higher increase than the ones that were actually approved. 
And just so you know, the, the Rent Guidelines Board has nine members. Four of them are consider are what are called property owner members, and then four of them are what are tenant members, and then there's one what they call public members. So that there's a tie that could that person could break the tie. And uh, this year in June, they voted for uh, the amounts that I mentioned before. And you know, this is another example of expenses that are outpacing the amount of rent, not only for a vacant apartment for an apartment that's currently occupied at a legal rent that's much lower than the market rent. And when that apartment becomes vacant, it the, the rent can't go up. And if the tenant continues to stay there, they're only going to have a small rent increase based on whatever the Rent Guidelines Board says. Yes, Bill, I want to add on HSTPA the consequences. I happen to have a vacant rent regular apartment whose tenant lived there for 30 years. And it's an apartment that it dates back from 1910. It looks like an apartment from a museum. Um, it has the bathtub in the living quarters, in the living room. And renovations are, re- are required, not $15,000 that we're capped with, but it probably requires up to $120,000 to $140,000 to renovate the apartment and make it modern. The inability to do that forces the landlord to keep it vacant. But the the fact that we're capped at $15,000 belies the fact that institutions like NYCHA are granted anywhere from $120,000 to $200,000 for renovations, which far exceeds what we're given, $15,000 that we're capped with. Let me just jump in and say that we're not given this money. This is our money that's going into our property. This is reinvestment into our asset. And I'm glad you brought that up, Lincoln, because there's one thing that we really haven't touched on, and you you just really hit the nail on the head. Property owners that have rent-stabilized housing are providing affordable housing as a private owner of real estate without any benefit, no tax abatement, no extra money from the government to help make ends meet. It is what should be a public responsibility, and it's borne by private owners. And HSTPA just exacerbated that, and the pandemic exacerbated that even more. So I think I think we've really gone deep enough into what the problems are. We, we could probably spend three hours continuing to talk about that. But what I really want to get into now is what are some of the solutions that the three of you see and what has to happen now, state and citywide, in order to be positive for both property owners like yourself that have rent-stabilized buildings and the tenants that live there? I would say, in concept, it's quite simple. It's, it's very simple, actually. What has to be done now is uh, refocus on civil rights, fundamental civil rights, which is property rights. Property owners need to get their full rights to their property back. And then we focus on assisting tenants that really need financial assistance. They need to get a means test, a uh, annual means test. And what does that mean, a means test? 
to, to show that they qualify for the affordable unit? Correct. Because there are people that actually have vacation homes and resort areas that have rent-stabilized apartments that they're not giving up. Correct. And if we have our property rights and we see somebody is well off, they have external assets, there's no reason for us to provide the, the society or us as an individual to provide that person that level of assistance. So either they have to give up the apartment or they're going to have to accept the rent that we demand. Right. So in other words, that person would have a means test. They would show that they have the income and assets, that they don't need an affordable apartment, and that they have to pay whatever the market rent is for that apartment or move out. And then it would stay affordable and rent stabilized at the lower rent for someone who actually really needs it. Yes and no. The New York has proven that it does not have the sensibility to properly regulate access to my property because that's what they're, they're doing. Right. And I want to point out here that there is a constitutional challenge uh, brought by uh, CHIP, a Community Housing Improvement Program and RSA Rent Stabilization Association as plaintiffs against defendants. I believe it's the city, uh, the RGB, the state. I'm not sure exactly who the defendants are, but there is a constitutional challenge that has gone through all the lower courts and uh, the industry. Uh, everybody is waiting to find out if the Supreme Court is going to hear the case. And if the Supreme Court hears the case, uh, then uh, that that actually might change everything. And there's been a lot of uh, articles recently in the media about this. So if you just Google it, it'll come up and you'll be able to read more about it. And yes, you were talking about property rights and this might help. Yes. But if it doesn't, it still can be done at the state and city legislative level. Yes. To functionally solve the problem, like I said, property owners need to have th their rights to their, their property and uh, we decide who stays in our property, whether we're going to uh, renew a lease and what our um, rent should be. And we negotiate that with the, the, the market, the tenants. Uh, the other aspect of it is supply, because I'm a big advocate of uh, providing assistance to tenants that need it. It won't work if the society still restricts uh, new development or redevelopment of of housing. We need to address supply. The governor and the mayor uh, made attempts at that. The, the secret sauce is property owners having their rights, supply, and actual assistance to tenants that really need assistance. Because if you have all of those in play, that will make a night and day difference. The system that we're in now is stagnant. It constrains the, the local economy. Because all the stuff that we're talking about, like, think about that. If I had the economic wherewithal and the an incentive to hire people to do these turnovers for um, my, my units, all of us here, we would be paying people. That money would be flowing into their pockets. While they're working, they're getting lunch at, at the, the local diners and corner stores and this, that, and the other. And it would spur the, the local economy. And even... The, the Fed did a study, and I believe they said New York City and San Francisco alone, if we got rid of the, their restrictions on, um, on housing, it would boost the, the national economy about 3%. Wow. That's the national economy. Lincoln brings up a great point. Um, the fact that the HSTPA law, what it did was it, it really affected the community as a whole. We can't hire contractors. We can't hire 
more janitors. We can't hire more supers. We, it's just, you know, we were feeding the community. And at this point, we can't do that anymore. I was just talking to a contractor who's been in the business for over 30 years, and he just told me he had to lay off seven people. He just can't keep them anymore. So those are seven individuals that may not be able to get a job elsewhere and will have to be, uh, you know, put on some type of social service program. And those seven individuals may not be homeowners. They may be people that rent, that can't find an apartment because the supply is not there. Property owners really want to rent their apartments. We want to solve the problems that exist. Looking for solutions or providing solutions to this. And unfortunately, Albany thinks otherwise. They have to change their policies and perspectives to roll back. We need to roll back the policies that exist. We need to make sure that property owners have the rent that is necessary to cover the expenses and operate with a profit so they can utilize that money to keep the housing stock uh, affordable as well as maintained, well-maintained. Property owners, we need to be active in this process. We need Albany to be active in this process. Uh, we want to make sure that our rents are based on you know, the free market, that we're not relying upon the government to provide the income, that the market provides a solution to a lot of our problems. But if it, if it needs to be, we can get the, uh, the, the government and the state to provide the necessary supplements, make it affordable. In the introduction, I talked about the LRHRA, which is the Local Regulated Housing Restoration Adjustment Bill that was not passed. And I think a combination of something like that and a voucher program is something that the three of you want to talk about, that you have ideas about, and how this could partially solve the housing crisis that we currently have in the city of New York. I mean, obviously, there has to be more supply in terms of new building, but this could take existing apartments that could be quickly renovated and immediately introduce them into the supply and provide people that really need the housing with the housing that they need. So tell me specifically, what are your ideas about how that would look if it happened? Yes, I think um, a first rent proposal, which should be like a free market proposal to the potential tenant is probably the best way in which a property owner could get the income and justify the actual cost of renovating an apartment. My idea is we need to get rid of the, let's restrict rents, stabilize rents. Let's focus on stabilizing people. That's my idea with uh, taking care of uh, tenants and housing overall. Owners post their, their rents, what their, what their asking rent is. They negotiate that with the market. If there is a gap between what the tenant can pay because of their economic situation and what the owner is asking for, the government steps in and covers that distance for the tenant, not for the owner, for the tenant, so that it's affordable for the tenant. And what will make that work is supply. If we do it in a supply vacuum, the system won't work. We have to address zoning. We have to address, the, the again, those restrictions for uh, property owners so that if we have a a tenant that is a non-payer, chronic non-payer, destructive, this, that, and the other. We have our property rights. And we 
okay, we're not going to rent to you again. Uh, you violated your lease. We we have proper due process, a, a two-year uh, court case to remove somebody, and only we only get a, a stipulation instead of a, a, a proper judgment. That's not actual due process. And just to make a point on what the two of you just said, if we increase supply, I mean, it's basic economics, right? Supply and demand. If you increase supply that can absorb the demand, then what happens to the price? Goes down. Exactly. Increase right. the housing stock. And, and there's something that I think people really have to understand is that, you know, we're not talking about market rate apartments that aren't in the rent stabilized system. So if you're in a luxury building with market rate apartments, you're paying market rate. And, it, and if there's no more market rate buildings built because there's not a program to incentivize developers to build those, then guess what? Your rent's going up too. And there was more of a supply that would probably have an impact on lowering market rate rents as well. Also, if you're in a building where there's a blend of market rate and rent stabilized, guess who's paying to subsidize the low rent stabilized rent? The market rate tenants. Yes. That's a huge issue I have to deal with. If we had some of the, the uh, changes that we're suggesting now, some of my tenants' rent would actually go down because they're covering the cost of, of others. Uh, again, those two-bedroom situations. I have several two-bedrooms. The tenants are paying 900 and something uh, a month. But my actual operating costs for those apartments right now is $1,200. So they're, they're a money loser. So a market-rated tenant has to make up the difference. Exactly. So they're paying significantly more per month to cover that cost. If all apartments were being rented above their actual operating costs, then those, those, that extra charge on some of the, the free market uh, apartments would, would go down significantly. I wanted to jump into maybe uh, some quick wins, easy ways for the regulators to allow us to free up some of these apartments that we can put out there. One would be expanding the uh, voucher program and allowing rent-stabilized apartments to accept vouchers at full value. Governor Hochul did sign into uh, a bill a while back uh, something similar. However, it's only applicable to uh, properties that are under regulatory agreement. When you say regulatory agreement, what do you mean, Val? There are various different programs uh, through HPD or, or other agencies where um, owners, usually you know, very large owners, um, get uh, very beneficial financing and tax incentives uh, so to put their property under an affordable housing program. Usually it's like a 20-year or could be a 30-year type of program. And those are the operators that were given this benefit. Again, the big guys, not us little people. <laughs> again, the rent-stabilized owners are once again shafted. And with that, Val, I want to point out that, again, Realty Speak listeners, in case you didn't hear it the first time I said it, these three owners and all the owners like them, which represent a majority of the people that are providing affordable housing from private real estate ownership, do not receive any benefit from the government. So private owners are bearing the burden of what should be a public responsibility. 
Lincoln, you had something to say? I just wanted to add on, we have high income tenants being in rent stabilized apartments where somebody that, that earns $200,000 a year is in an apartment and they're paying $1,300. And it's a huge apartment because the, the, it's been in their family for 40 years. Oh, and let's talk about family, right? There's something called succession rights, which means under certain circumstances, if someone's been in an apartment for 20 years and someone else is living there that's a family member, they get to take over that rent-stabilized lease. So there are people that have been in rent-stabilized apartments for half a century. Right. The reason why I I have that apartment that's, uh, what's it, $460, $480, I forget the exact number right on top of my head. But the reason why that rent is so low is because that was one of the first families that my parents put in when they took over the property. And they stayed in and had succession, and it's been locked in to, to that that super super low rent. And if we can if we can bring this back to the HSTPA of 2019, if someone was a high income family or individual, you were able to bring a case in court to say that this person does not need this apartment, and therefore uh, would either have to move or deregulate it the HSTPA of 2019 took that away. So we, we, I have plenty of individuals who um, should not be qualified to live in the apartment. Let me go back to the, the point I'm trying to make that um, we all understand that issue with high income tenants. But what about when it's a government agency? I have a situation where I have a, a Section 8 tenant. Their rent is It's a two-bedroom apartment. The market rate for that apartment is about $2,200. Why is Section 8 getting a discount that's forcing me to operate that apartment below cost when the government program is pretty much... Right now, that tenant pays nothing out of pocket. They have two government entities covering their 100% of their rent. But... If the government is paying, why am I being forced to operate that apartment month to month at a loss? Makes no sense. And I'm going to keep driving this home. Why are you, a private property owner, required to provide what should be a public benefit by reducing the revenue that you receive from that apartment from $2,200 to $980 a month? Makes no sense. So just to kind of twist that a little bit with Section 8. So the way that the system works now is that uh, even for market apartments, if you have a Section 8 tenant in the apartment and they refuse to sign the lease with the increase based on based on what NYCHA is allowing for Section 8, um, that tenant gets to stay in that apartment forever until they decide to sign, sign the lease. So I have a tenant who's been in court since 2018 because she refuses to sign her Section 8 lease so that the owner can get a decent increase. And this is a market apartment. It's not even a rent-stabilized apartment. So that's housing court. Irving, you have anything to add to that? No, but I do want to make a comment on the fact that small property owners or property owners in general are want to get these apartments back online. And we provide the most effective way of doing this. Um, and besides allowing the market to function, uh, we do want to keep these apartments as rent-regulated apartments as long as we get the first rent proposal in place. And uh, it's the most f- cost-effective way of providing these apartments as opposed to renovating hotels 
or, or renovating commercial properties, which may not be accessible. And uh, we can provide 42,000 plus vacant units back online very easily. And Albany has refused to allow this process to happen. And again, there was the local regulated housing restoration adjustment bill. And what did get passed was the anti-housing bills, which may iterate between the uh, between the New York State Assembly and the New York State Senate and Governor Hochul. Uh, so we really don't know what the final outcome of that will be. But the, but there are two housing bills which are very, very detrimental and actually exacerbate some of the things that we've talked about today. So before we start closing this episode, is there anything else that any of you want to add? We, I'd like to add um, CHIPS bill. That's the LRHRA. Right. So that bill, uh, unfor- it unfortunately, didn't pass it. It's you know not as good as I would like it to be. There are some troubling right. aspects of it. But it was a, it, it was a good first attempt. The the idea of allowing an owner to at least be able to reset the rent upon vacancy, so that they can bring the apartment up to HQS standards and um, charge a you know market rate um, amount would you know be very helpful and allow many of these apartments to be you know taken out of this quote warehousing myth. I want to add that once those apartments are back on the market and occupied, they are still rent stabilized at the new rent. Right. And so if the rent guidelines board says 2% next year for one year lease, you know, even that, even though that rent now is a fair market rent, you're still in a stabilized apartment where you, where you don't have to worry about the rent going up more than 2% if you live there. Yes. This, this is not a new concept. This is, uh, LA does this. LA has the, this process in um, working now where the uh, apartment is vacated, the the rent is set to what the market is, and then it proceeds on as a rent-stabilized unit. Uh, that can work. I'm, I'm not for um, stabilizing apartments. I'm for stabilizing people. But like you said, that can work. That will relieve some of the, the financial uh, pressure and allow us to maintain our properties and feed our families. Again, uh, property owners are not responsible for the housing crisis. Albany needs to change the laws to allow property owners to provide affordable housing, but it must be economically feasible. That's the critical thing. And by doing that, you will increase the housing stock and therefore lower the cost of housing once that occurs. Well, Val, Lincoln, Irving... I really want to thank the three of you taking the time out of your day to come down to the lower part of Manhattan, so far away from where all of you live, and uh, pay for parking, <laughs> and and record this episode with me today. Come back episode number 48. Uh, Real Realty Speak listeners, I hope you really, really enjoyed this. And uh, in the show notes, I will put uh, some links to some different things that you may want to check out. But what I really implore you to do is to share this. With not just with people that own real estate, but with people that don't own real estate, with people that rent, with people that are homeowners and have no concept of what the rental market is out there. And for everyone to get on the phone and get on their keyboards, and like I said before, all you have to do if you live in New York City or you have housing in New York City that you own, even if you don't live there, you can put in the address, the New York City address, just Google who represents me, N-Y-C, and 
you will be able to see all your representatives from the state to the city level, and you can reach out to them by emailing them or calling their office and saying, you know what, I just became enlightened about some things, and I'm not really happy with the way things are going. And we want to see property owners and tenants alike deal with a fair housing market that has supply, that meets the demand, and that has rents that are affordable. Because I don't know about you, but living in the city of New York is amazing. And everyone who wants to be here should be able to be here. And with that, I do want to ask you one more question. If you woke up tomorrow and something in New York City changed, what do you wish it could be? And it could be anything. It doesn't have to do with housing. If something in New York City changed, what do you wish it would be? Val? I would uh, wish that we would have elected officials that used more common sense in, in their approach to uh, applying regulations to uh, the citizens of uh, the city. Lincoln? Yeah, common sense. Um, <laughs> it's the same wish. It, it, people that actually care about other people and uh, are not fixated on vilifying others for political gain. Because that's, that's what we have right now. We have this uh, circle of, of, of hate going on and it, it doesn't help anyone. It's harming everyone, actually. Irving? Yes, Bill. I think we need to reverse the policies that Albany has enacted. Um, I agree that... Uh, these policies are being enacted to undermine uh, small property owners, not only our businesses and our ability to provide affordable housing. It's making the city unsafe with the current um, criminal justice laws, including the closing of Rikers and, and the bail reform. These policies need to be reversed for New York City to function properly and to make it safe for us to operate. Everyone has heard the saying, if you keep doing the same things and expect different results, that's the definition of insanity. And so everybody, listen to what Val, Lincoln, and Irving had to say today, and let's stop doing the same things and being insane, and let's get rid of the adversarial environment that we're in right now, and let's get everyone who's a stakeholder in this housing market, to sit at the table and talk about things that we've never talked about before. And that's how we will come up with the true, successful, executable solutions to the current housing crisis in New York City. Val, Lincoln, Irving, thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Bill. Thank you, Bill. It's been a great experience. Thanks, Bill, for inviting us to give our perspective. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website and there's an opt-in option on the top of the page or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe and you're in. Spotify? Yes, you will find Realty Speak there as well. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. Or just email your friends 
Realty Speak, something you should listen to now. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, having a local law 152 gas piping inspection done, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at billwidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.